Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to study your word. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we see what you'd have us to learn from this. And we just thank you for this wonderful time of fellowship in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 30, starting at verse 9. We're continuing our curses on Egypt. And remember, as we've said, Egypt is a literal place, but Egypt also spiritually represents the flesh and the world. So part of this is a spiritual application as well. Verse 9, In that day shall messengers go forth from me in ships to make the careless Ethiopians afraid, and great pain shall come upon them as in the day of Egypt, for lo, it comes. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also make the multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, and the, ter the terrible of the nations shall be brought to destroy the land, and they shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. And I will make the rivers dry and swell and sell the land in, into the hand of the wicked, and I will make the land waste and all that is therein by the hand of strangers. I, the Lord, have spoken it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols, and I will cause their images to cease out of no... And there shall be no more prince in the land of Egypt. I will put fear in the land of Egypt. And I will make Pathos desolate, and will set fire in zone, and will execute judgment in No. And I will pour my fury upon sin and in the strength of Egypt, and I will cut off the multitude of No. I will set fire in Egypt. Sin shall have great pain, and No shall be rent asunder, and No shall be in distress daily. The young men of Aven and of Pithbesheth shall fall by the sword, and these cities shall go into captivity. The teth hath enef also in the day shall be darkened, and, the, and I shall break there the yoke of Egypt, and the pomp of her strength shall cease in her. As for her, the clouds shall cover her, and her daughters shall go forth into captivity. Thus will I execute judgment in Egypt, and they shall know that I am the Lord. All right, we're going to look at this. There's a whole bunch of cities named there, so... And let me find my map. Verse 9. In that day shall messengers go forth from me in ships and make the careless Ethiopians afraid. And great pain shall come upon them as in the day of Egypt, for lo, it comes. Here's the idea of, he says, the Ethiopians are careless. And that's living in comfort is what they're saying. They're, they're just having this assumption that they're in peace. Egypt is protecting them and they've got strength. Nobody, nobody's going to hurt them. Kind of like where America's been for many years, that nobody's going to hurt us. You know, we get, we've gotten kind of careless in our, in our thinking. And leading oftentimes will lead to a sinful lifestyle. And it's what he's saying that Ethiopia, you know, they're, they're being careless. They're not watching themselves. They're, not, they're, they're, they're trusting in Egypt as their protector. They're trusting in their own strength. And any time we trust in our own strength, we're looking for trouble, whether it's as a nation or even as an individual. Huh? I said, oh, we never do that. Yeah, nobody ever does that. Uh, nobody admits to it Yeah, until they fall. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we tend to do this even as human beings. We just start to think, you know, I'm strong. I can, I can protect myself or I don't have to worry about sin. I, you know, I, I'm going to be okay. And whenever we do that, we're setting ourselves up for a great fall. 
Verse 10, thus saith the Lord God, I will also make the multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Here's one that we know happened. Nebuchadnezzar did attack Egypt and put them into submission. Okay. Uh, and remember, we've talked about how especially this section of scripture has a lot of immediate fulfillment and a lot of future fulfillment. We talked about the idea that the prophecy said that Egypt would be desolate for 40 years. Never happened in, in Egypt's uh, history uh, yet, but it is to come. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. No, he's uh, the king of the Babylon Empire. He's the founder of the Babylon Empire that falls two, years, uh, two generations later under his grandson when Medo-Persian Empire takes over. Nebuchadnezzar is the, the third great kingdom of, the, of that area. You had Egypt, you had Assyria, then you had Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and then you're going to have the Medo-Persian Empire, then you're going to have the Greek Empire, and then you're going to have the Roman Empire. And those are the major empires of, the, of that area. Um, well, Babylon's Persia, basic for all practical purposes, but not quite the same way. All right, he and his people with him, the, the terrible of the nations shall be brought to destroy the land, and they shall draw their swords against Egypt, and shall fill the land with slain. And again, here, here's a picture of Babylon coming in, and, and Babylon basically destroyed Egypt, took it out of its it was never a nation again of any power for quite a while. As a matter of fact, even to this day, it's still never been another powerful nation. It's been a player in the area, but never, never a military power. And so we see that that was its destruction, that Nebuchadnezzar was to make it lose its influence. Before this time, Egypt had always been the one that people looked to for help. Uh, uh, Abraham went there for at one point. Uh, Jacob's going to go there when Joseph's running it. And it's always been a very powerful nation up until Nebuchadnezzar comes along and, and does a number on it. It gets to be a little bit of power, and then Rome puts it back in its place. But it, it's, So it's never going to be another nation power again. Verse 12 says, I will make the rivers dry and sell the land into the hand of the wicked, and I will make the land waste and that is therein in the hand of strangers, for I am the Lord, have I the Lord have spoken it. So again, we have this picture of the waters drying up in Egypt. And this is one thing that has not happened yet. And we've had this several times being said, it's going to happen. And whether it's going to happen, again, we talked about that, whether it's going to be dammed up and, and kept, keep the waters from flowing, if God's supernaturally going to, to do it, a nuclear blast comes in and totally devastates the area. You know, there's all kinds of different ways this could happen, but God says it's the waters are going to dry up. Well, it's, Nile is the biggest river of, of Egypt and, that de, and, the, and the Delta. So those two areas are the ones that are, are the big news for them. Uh, well, be at the end time is the, as near as we can tell because it's never happened yet. So it appears to be something that will be an end time or even during the tribulation period event. Um, we just don't know when. And this is what I've said about prophecy. We've got to be very careful when we look at prophecy because we don't really know what, when things are going to happen in the future. 
and believe me, I've listened to all the people over the years that try to tell us exactly when all the stuff's going to happen and, and pin it down to the, to the letter. And the whole reason Jesus, the Jews do not believe that Jesus is Messiah is because he, they were looking for a Messiah that was going to be the deliverer of the nation and make it the centerpiece of all, of, all the world, which is yet to come. And they totally ignored every prophecy that Jesus fulfills, saying, well, he didn't fulfill everything, so therefore he's not the right person. So we need to be very careful when we look at prophecy because who knows how much longer. You know, we, we know we're all set for Jesus to return at any time, but there's still things that can happen out there before, before he returns, before the tribulation period. So we want to we look at this and be very understanding. Listen to these guys when they tell you their stories, but take anything that they're talking about in the, in, for the future with kind of a grain of salt because it's you know, when they start laying out, this has got to happen, this has got to happen, this is going to happen, they start laying out the exact order and, and who it's going to happen and where it's going to happen from. It's interesting, but, you know, and as, you know, but it's not necessarily ironclad. I've been watching end times prophecies for, for over 30 years and, watch, and studying them, and it's been amazing how much they've changed over the years and how people, how the players change. Uh, for a long time, they weren't considering Persia at all. They kept looking at Russia. Now Russia is no longer the big power, but Persia is becoming the power, just as the Bible says. Okay, that whole area up there is becoming a player, player in the region, and people are going, oh, yeah, well, here it is. And so we want to be careful and make sure we know what we're talking about when we're talking about prophecy, and it's, and it's a tough area to, to look at. But it says, the rivers will be dry and the land shall be sold to the hand of the wicked and the land will be laid west, waste. Again, I think we're talking about something in the future, some event in the future that's going to just destroy the land of Egypt. When Nebuchadnezzar came in, he just destroyed the people, you know, killed off the army and put them, put them in their place. He didn't destroy all of the, all the country. Uh, didn't dam up rivers, didn't poison rivers. He... So much of this stuff does not fit his attack. Uh, is it uh, it's understood? <laughs> All right, verse 13. Thus saith the Lord God, I will destroy their idols. I will cause their images to cease out of Noph, and, out of, and there will be no more a prince in the land of Egypt, and I will put fear in the land of Egypt. And uh, Noph, let's see if I can remember where Noph is. <laughs> Because Noph is also one of their gods. <laughs> Put little highlights in it and I don't see it. How do you spell that? N-O-P-H. Do you have Memphis? No, I got Noph. I'm a Baptist. Oh, well, there you go. I actually hit it, highlighted it. Noph is Memphis. Oh. It's the old name for Memphis. Which is right on, right, right below Cairo, on the big, on the easy to read map. No, it's uh, just another name for over the years that it's been changed. Yeah. Well, it's hard to find these places that you don't know where they're at, which is why I give you the map so we can try to figure out where these places are and and kind of get some idea. Uh, Memphis or Noph has always been a very uh, key, key city in Egypt. And 
says he's going to destroy the idols from there and, and take the idols out of there. And he says he's going to put fear, the fear of God, back into Egypt. And this is kind of an interesting statement because they had fear back in the days of Moses when the ten plagues hit them. And they're going to bring, and God's going to bring back his fear. And again, when we look at this as being the idea of Egypt representing the world and the flesh, God wants to put our flesh out of commission and, and, and make us recognize God. So there's a kind of a two-edged, there's a spiritual edge to this and a, and a literal physical uh, prophecy on all of this. Let's see, verse 14, and I will make Pathros desolate and will set fire in Zoan and will execute judgments in No, and all of these ones are up toward the, uh, me, uh, yeah, the delta for those ones. So, and... Uh, Let's see, Pathos is in Upper Egypt, up in the Nile area. Zone is another name for Tanis, which is on your map here. And Tanis is up in the, up in the peninsula, in the Delta Peninsula on the east side of it. And then you've got, uh, again, No, which is the uh, Themes, which I don't remember where that one is. It's further south, I think. Yeah, or tabs rather. Tabs, which is way down and right in the middle of your map there, right on the right on uh, the Nile. If you fold your paper in half, it'd be right on the fold. <laughs> tabs, T H E B S, and that's the old English no. <laughs> All right, so he's going to say he's going to pour out his fury on sin. Uh, and he's going to execute judgment. So he's going to make these whole areas desolate. And again, this is something that has not happened in history. There's always been something going on all through there. They've not been desolate. Now, Egypt, most of Egypt is not someplace where the average person wants to live. Uh, but that's the way it's always been. So it's not, it's not something that has been changed. It's all very much desert except right there at the Nile River, it is a pretty harsh desert. And so we look at this. He says, I pour out my fury upon sin, and that's that whole region on the western part of the Sinai Peninsula, uh, this, the north, northwestern portion of, uh, of uh, the Sinai Peninsula. And the strength, the strength of Egypt, and I will cut off the multitude of no. And again, nose further south. No, that whole no or, or Tebs is about as far south as you go for a large city in Egypt. So he says he's going to cut them off, separate them. And so we see here a strong curse of God upon Egypt. And Egypt has been a thorn in the side of the, of the Israelite people for the entire time it's existed in, in this, up till now. Uh, held them captive for several generations, th four of them as a matter of fact. And so there'd been a problem with them. And when we, if you remember, when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, would they keep saying, we want to go back to Egypt? You know, things were, life was so good in Egypt, we want to go back. You know, well, you were slaves, you were being beat, you know, but you're, 
But it, you know, it was kind of amazing. And we do the same type of thing all the time. We get, we start following God and going, God, I want to go back to the sin. Uh, it's, it's hard living the Christian life, as sometimes we'll say. And you know, it is hard if we aren't focused on God. And the draw of the sin in the flesh has a strong draw on us. And people will go, you know, I just want so bad to go back and do what I used to do. The only problem is, if you try to go back as a Christian, you're not happy doing that either. So you're in trouble. You're not, go- you're not doing what you're supposed to, and you're not happy doing what you thought you'd be happy doing. And, of course, all your friends or quote-unquote friends who you're trying to sin with are looking at you like, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, people understand when that double-mindedness. If you go out and you're trying to live after God, and all of a sudden you're starting to to sin and, and, and do all the sin again, they look at you and they like, oh, you know, what's wrong with you? And we know that happens. You know, they look at you like, well, you, you started turning around and now you're back here and you're not accepted by them either. And, and if you do it often enough, the Christians stop accepting you a lot of times because they go, well, you're just playing games. You're, you're going to keep going back to your sin. And it's a very dangerous place when you put your hand to the plow, Jesus says, you're to stay holding on to that plow and go forward. And farmers will get hurt if they're trying to look backwards as the, as the animal's pulling the plow and they're holding on to the plow and they end up getting drug or, or falling into the plow or whatever else, especially in the old days when it was an animal-pulled plow. You know, it was a very dangerous thing to turn around and try to have the plow in one hand and be looking back <laughs> over your shoulder to deal with things. And you know, we need to stay when we go forward, make a decision and stay with God. And you know, for me, I have found it so easy to live with God if you just stay focused on Him. Now, if you're trying to say, I can do it in my own strength, you're in trouble. You're going to be in trouble every time when you say, I'm going to do this in my own strength. But when you can live with God, following God in the way that He wants to, wants you to follow Him, He'll give you the strength. He'll give you the strength. How do we get rid of our sin in our life? We turn it over to God and give it over to him and ask him to give us the strength to get it through. And so we want to look at this in a very strong manner. God is saying, I am your strength. Jesus said, put on my yoke. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he takes on our, our burdens and doesn't affect him at all. We've said this before, you know, what problem of ours to God is going to seem like a big problem? And he says, here, just give me all your problems. Here, I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you nothing but lightness, and you're going to walk beside me, and I'll carry the burden. You know, we can live that way. Life gets pretty easy. Saying, God, here, you, you, you have it, God. <laughs> and I've shared with you, you know, when I wasn't making any money, I'd hold up the bills and say, here, okay, here, okay God, here's your, your bills. I paid everything I can. I just gave them to him. And then he gave me lots of work to do to pay the bills. <laughs> but I was then willing to do those jobs. But he always provided. And he wants to provide for us. He is a good father who wants to give us good things as long as we'll keep in honoring him. The problem that we have so often is that we get blessed and we take our eyes off God. And we shared this with you. I've seen many people over my years that get blessed. They get all kinds of toys to, toys to play with. And the next thing you know, they're not in church because they're playing with their toys. They're out camping. They're on their boat. They're on their, they're on their quads. They're in their RV. They're in their summer home. 
you know, whatever it might be, they're, they're spending so much time with their toys, they forget God who gave them to them in the first place. Which is why a lot of people don't get blessed because God knows that they're going to substitute the blessing for him. And we need to keep our mind focused and our eyes focused on God, the giver, not the blessings he gives us. And it's wonderful to be blessed. It's wonderful to, to know that God is the one that's delivering us and be able to live in that blessing. But we always have to remember it's him. Yeah. Even if you're a smart, very talented person, it's still God that gives you the opportunities to use those, those gifts. And he gave you the gifts in the first place. So we want to keep focused on him. Verse 16, And I will set fire in Egypt. Sin shall have great pain. And that's, again, the, the wilderness of sin, not, not the literal sin. And no shall be rent asunder, and no shall, be, shall have distresses daily. So again, we're talking about pretty bad environment. When God fully comes against Egypt, things will be a disaster. Now, Nebuchadnezzar makes life difficult for them. But again, we're not seeing this type of huge devastation that God is predicting. So could it be as simple as something in the near future? Egypt has been helping Israel. The rest of the Muslim world may not like that and may take and put Egypt in its place very severely because of them helping Egypt. Now, Egypt is by far not a friend of Israel, but they've been kind of keeping them held up and giving them you know, little benefits here and there and trying to protect them a little bit. So it could be that the rest of the nations decide, okay, we've had enough of you helping them. And that's a very volatile area. That whole Middle Eastern area is very volatile. And it could very easily explode into violence at any time. And extreme violence. And so we're looking, we're looking at things. And it's fun to look at what God is doing in this world when you pick up your Bible and say, oh, God, this is what you said is going to happen. And we look, and everything's poised for just that to happen. God says Israel's going to stand alone in the end times. And, you know, it's not very far off from being by itself. Jesus said that the, the world when the end days would be like the days of Noah and that the men would call good evil and evil good. And uh, we see that happening in our world. Everything that God says is good, is, people are calling evil. And everything that God says is evil, the world is calling good. Uh, marriage is one of those topics, you know. A man and a wife, heterosexual marriage is being looked at as a bad thing. Somebody wanting a homosexual marriage is looking at being a good thing. Somebody who wants to form a family by just living together is looked at as a good thing without any commitments. God calls all of those things sin, and what he says is the right way, people are looking at as a bad, bad, bad activity. You know, and it's becoming very much true of everything. If God has a standard, the world is saying it's bad. And whatever is against that standard is being called good. But you know, we are in a time when everything is changing. Everything is changing. Whatever God calls good, the world is calling evil. And what the world calls, uh, what God calls evil, the world is calling good. But that is exactly what he said would happen. And it's an amazing thing that we watch. And our world is getting so dark and so evil, I'm wondering how much further it can go before God says, okay, we're at the end. You know, you're also to the place where we can't say anything about what God says. If God says it's evil and we call it evil, we are called bigoted and judgmental. If we say that 
you know, well, this is what God called you. So, well, that's really, you know, you're being so judgmental and bigoted. There, there's, you know, you've got to be able to accept our way. Verse 20. And it came to pass in the 11th year of the first month of the seventh day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and lo, it shall not be bound to, up to be healed and to put a roller to bind it or to make it strong to hold the sword. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arm, the strong and that which was broken, and I will cause the sword to fall out of his hand. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and will disperse them through the countries. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand and I will break the Pharaoh's arms and he shall groan before him with the groanings of the deadly wounded man. And I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and the arms of Pharaoh shall shall fall down and they shall know that I am the Lord when I shall put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall stretch it out upon the land of Egypt and I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them from among the countries and they shall know that I am the Lord. So here he seems to be God talking now more about what has definitely happened. He goes in verse 20, and it will come to pass came to pass in the 11th year of the first month of the seventh day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me saying, I like the way Ezekiel keeps putting time markers in here to tell you exactly when things happen. The 11th year, first month, seventh day of Nebuchadnezzar's reign is what he's referring to here. And it says, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and lo, it shall not be bound up to be healed to put a ruler to bind it or to make strong to hold the sword. In other words, he's broken it. You won't put it in a cast. And by the way, you're not even going to put a bandage on it. And that's what it means, roller, is a bandage. Um, so he says, Pharaoh's going to have a, a is, is totally going to be broken. And an arm is what held the sword. The arm is what was used for protection in those days. And still is to this day. If you have a broken arm, it's hard to fight even with the weapons of our, of our day. And it says, I, and look at this, it says, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh. God has done it. He is the one that's making Pharaoh not be able to defend himself correctly. Now, how does he break his arm? That's a good, good question, because it doesn't really tell us how, it, how he's done that. How did he do it in, in Moses' day? The 10 plagues that just totally devastated them economically. And we've talked about that. They destroyed the River Nile, killed the fish, killed the, killed the transport up and down. They just, they, they, he destroyed the, all the, the plants through the hail and the fire and the, and the locusts. He you know, had all these different things that would destroy them economically. And basically Pharaoh's arm was broken at that time because he could not fight. And then he followed, followed Egypt with uh, Israel with his army and got them drowned in the in the Red Sea, which totally broke his arm. So how is God going to break the arm of Pharaoh so that he can't defend himself? We don't know, but we do know part of it's going to be Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar coming in and defeating him. And Nebuchadnezzar was a mighty general. He was a king, but he was a mighty general. He won his battles when he went into battle. And so we, God says, I'm going to make Egypt not able to defend itself. I'm not even... And you know, he really makes it in this colorful language. Uh, it shall not be bound up, or, or we would say put into a cast, and it will not and put a roller to bind it or, or a bandage. So he doesn't get a cast, and he doesn't even get the strength of a rolled up bandage around his arm. 
so we see this, this process going in. Verse 22 says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arm, the strong, and that which was broken, and I will cause the sword to fall out of his hand. So this is God doing the destruction. And, you know, one thing we think about, if you've ever been in a place where it seems like God's against you, it's a hard life to live. I've done that where I was in disobedience trying to do things my way and God seemed to be against me in everything I did. Very hard life and here God's saying, I'm going to be against Pharaoh. Everything Pharaoh tries, he's going to, it's not going to work. God is going to be against him. Worst place in the world is to be in a place where God is against you. Where you refuse to repent, you refuse to turn over to God and let him fight against you. And don't do it. It's no fun. If, you've, if you haven't been there, don't do it. <laughs> if you've been there, repent and go back to God like you're supposed to. Because one of the things about it is if God is trying to say you're not going to do something, it doesn't matter how good your plan is, plan is. It doesn't matter how strong you think you are. You're going to lose. If God is against you, you will lose. And mine was, I was, as you all know, I'm an administrator and a planner. I would, you know, I was fighting hard against God. For six years, I fought against God. I kept putting together really good plans, and they kept falling apart at the seams. We want to, we want to keep that in mind. You know, if you're trying to fight God, you're going to lose. Plain and simple. And especially as one of his children. If you're his child and you're trying to fight against him, you're going to lose. He's going to discipline Pharaoh here and says, you're going to, you're going to pay for what you've done to my people. In this case, it's going to, you're going to pay for what you've done to my children. And big, big problem that is going to be faced. Verse 23, And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and will disperse them through the countries. This has happened during Nebuchadnezzar's reign because Nebuchadnezzar was one of the original kings that would conquer a place and move out half to two-thirds of the population to other parts of his empire. And then he'd take where they went to and take some people from those places and move them to where he just took out those people. And that's where the Samaritans came in involved with in Israel. They were the poorest of the poor. They were the third that was left in Israel when he took the rest out and scattered the Israelites all around his nation. And his nation went from India to Egypt. They scattered the Egyptians throughout the, throughout the Babylonian Empire. Verse 24 says, And I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, and, I will, and put my sword in his hand, and I will break Pharaoh's arms, and he shall groan before him with the groanings of a deadly wounded man. God says, I will strengthen the arms of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, this goes back to what was said. Who, if, who, if God before me, who can be against me? Now Nebuchadnezzar's got God on his side as he's getting ready to battle the Egyptians. And I'm not sure if the particular point of this is after Nebuchadnezzar started following God, because remember in the story of Daniel, Daniel brings the gospel message, brings God into Nebuchadnezzar's life. God, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a follower of God. And if you remember, at one point, Nebuchadnezzar looks up and says, this is Babylon, the kingdom I have created. And God says, okay, your doom has fallen on you because of your pride. You know, remember Nebuchadnezzar, I told you, I gave it to you. And Nebuchadnezzar became like a wild animal, had the mind of an animal for seven years. And 
basically ate grass, walked on all fours, and grew his hair out long and lost his mind for seven years. And then he got his mind back and God restored him back to his kingdom. And so we don't know whether this particular time is when he's following God or not. I have a feeling it's probably that he's following God and getting the blessings of God as well. But he says, I will strengthen Babylon's arm. I will put my sword in his hand and I will break Pharaoh's arms. And it says, Pharaoh shall groan with the groaning of a deadly wounded man, or we would say mortally wounded man. He's on his way, you know, he's dead. And this is what we see of, of Egypt. Egypt from this point forward, from Babylon forward, is going to be a very weak nation and never be in an empire again. And so we see that part being fulfilled. Verse 25, But I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, and the arms of Pharaoh shall fall down, and they, sh and they shall know that I am the Lord, when I shall put my sword in the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall stretch it out upon the land of Egypt. And I will scatter Egypt, uh, scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the countries, and they shall know that I am the Lord. We have a repeat here. Anytime God repeats something, it's there for emphasis. And basically it says, pay attention. All right? If you see something repeated anywhere in scriptures in, a, in this type of way, twice, repeated twice, start looking at it closely and say, what's the emphasis? The emphasis here is that God was going to strengthen Nebuchadnezzar and he was, he was going to be the one that would break down the king and that the Egyptians would be scattered. Now, if you see something repeated three times, really look at it. In Isaiah 6, it says, holy, holy, holy is what the angels say about God, that he's holy, holy, holy. And very few places where we have a triple designation in scripture. So when you see those triples, pay attention to them because they're really bringing out an emphasis that for God. And this is something that's very important. Paul says, I've learned to be content with much or with little. And if I'm not content with what I have, I will never be content with anything that I get. And that means I'll have to work myself to death to get something that I think is going to get me contentment. And when I get it, it's not going to be content. Most of the time, we, our problem is we think we need something else to be content. And if we're not content with what God gives us and with God, nothing else will ever content us. This is what happens. You know, this is what happens with the superstars that get, get what they think they was going to make them happy. If I just have enough fame, I have enough big albums, I have enough awards in my shelf, you know, whether it's sports or television, I'll be happy. And then they get there and they're still not happy. Because you're not happy and content with whatever God gives you, a lot more stuff is never going to make you happy. If you're happy and content with God, it doesn't matter whether you have a lot of stuff or nothing, your contentment is in God and what he provides. And otherwise, you can work yourself to death. And I tried it in my younger days. I worked all the time, and I was, I was never happy. I was always trying to get to the next step. And then I'm going, God, I just need to be happy with you. And for a while, I kept increasing my pay, and then all of a sudden, my pay got cut by a third or more. <laughs> but, and I was still content and happy because God was in control. And if you, again, if, you're, if you've learned contentment, it doesn't matter whether you have much or little. And whether you have nothing or everything. Solomon is a great example of that. He had everything and he still, I'm still not happy. 
uh, Book of Ecclesiastes. He was not happy. He said, I've, I've done building programs. I'm a great architect. I've planned all these things. We built these things. I've, he got into alcohol. He got into drugs. He got into women. He got into religion. And he goes, it's all vanity. Nothing's worth anything. He goes, even money's not worth anything. And if you recall, we've talked about this. In Solomon's day, silver was his, had the value of sand because you know, he had so much of it. It was worthless in, in Israel. And yet he was able to say, money, money is not worth anything. And you know, you hear people go, well, I'm willing to try. You know, uh, just give me a try. I'd be happy if I got it. Well, even if you don't have your health, if you're still content with what God gives you. Be in content with what God gives you. There's people that are deadly sick who are content with God and not bemoaning everything that, about life. Now, is life easy for them? Absolutely not. Being poor and content with God is not necessarily an easy life, but your, your contentment is in God and say, God, you've given me what you think I can handle. You've given me what, I des- what, I, what you think I need at this point in my life. And you be content with whatever it is that he gives you. Or you get enough money that you can buy whatever you want and you give lots of money to the church and you, you get content with that, but you stay content with God and not with the finances. Because so often, and you'll hear it all the time with these people who, especially those who don't know God, they'll get what they think they wanted and they'll be moaning and be saying things like, well, is this all there is? I'm just, I'm still not happy. Might show up in the fact that they're drunken and and blown out of their mind with drugs, you know, because they didn't find the happiness that they thought they were going to find in their stuff. They've interviewed almost almost every single lottery winner, big lottery winner, after a couple of years will say, I wish I never got this. I always thought I'd be happy with it. And I've heard people say, well, you know, I don't give to God now, but if I, if I had a million dollars, I'd start tithing. No, you won't. If you're not going to tithe on a, a, no, a little to no money, you won't tithe on a lot of money. It's just the way it is. You, God and Jesus said, if you're faithful within little things, you'll be given more. But if you're not faithful in little things, he's not going to give us more to be unfaithful with. Because that's exactly what would happen. I had an employee one time that said, you know, I, I, I want to be a supervisor. and going, you're not, you're not doing the type of work of a supervisor. Well, if you make me a supervisor, I go, uh-uh doesn't work that way. You're going to show me that you're a supervisor, and then I will promote you. God's the same way. Be faithful in whatever he gives you, and you get more. Because he says, okay, I can trust you. I can trust you with $5. Now, I, you know, now we can give you $5,000. I can trust you with $5,000. I can give you $5 million. But he's not going to give you $5 million to blow through and say, oh, God, I've made a mistake. Yeah, right. <laughs> Where are we looking at? Because if our contentment isn't in God, we will never find contentment. It just won't happen. You will never be content with stuff. You might be content for a short period of time. You know, I like using the new car il- illustration. If you have a new car, you love that smell, you love all the, all the gizmos in it and the fancy things, and a couple years later when it's got a couple scratches in it and things are starting to go wrong, you're looking at it and, well, I don't like this car just not worth, even if you don't get the scratches or anything in it, it still goes out of date. We, we keep wanting more and more if we're not content. And it's real easy. The flesh wants more, always. 
We're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, teach us to be content. Teach us to follow after you and all with all of our heart. Help us to see that our flesh is destroyed and that you're on our side and, and we follow you in your son's precious name. Amen.